Hello. This podcast is sponsored by aboutmeditation.com and our free How to Meditate mini course. Learn meditation in five easy lessons at aboutmeditation.com. Welcome to the One Mind Podcast from aboutmeditation.com. My name's Morgan Dix and I'm your host. On One Mind, we explore different angles on meditation, mindfulness, and health. We interview experts and everyday practitioners to bring you the stories, the science, and the exploration that will help you understand why this ancient practice is more relevant and important today than ever before. Hi everyone, I'm excited to share my interview with longtime meditator and mathematics teacher Lori Carroll. But first, a quick announcement today. This week, we're hosting a free seminar called Meditation for Life, a three-part introduction. You can get access to the three classes in this seminar by heading on over to aboutmeditation.com and registering. You can't miss it. There's a small announcement at the top of the website across the whole website, so you shouldn't have any trouble finding it. So if you struggle with anxiety, stress, or a racing mind that you can never slow down, or if you have a hard time being consistent with your meditation practice, or if you just don't know if you're doing it right, then this free three-part seminar is for you. So head on over to aboutmeditation.com and sign up today. It's only available this week and it's being offered as part of the lead up to the launch of our How to Meditate core training program. Now, back to today's podcast. Lori Carroll was a mentor of mine for many years. We were in the same meditation community for a long time, and I'm so happy to have him on the show. His work teaching meditation to students is a serious revelation. When all we hear about, especially in the States, is the ever-declining condition of our public education system. Hearing stories like Lori's is pure inspiration, and it, I don't know how else to say it, it gives you hope. For me, I think the thing that moved me the most from this interview was hearing how silence completely transformed the tone and the tenor of Lori's high school math classes and it allowed students to start realizing their potential where it had previously been stunted or limited. Now, if you're a parent or a teacher or you're otherwise engaged with children and young adults, you're going to pick up some tips and tools from this interview, no doubt about it. We go into a lot of detail about the work Lori actually did with the kids in the classroom and how exactly he taught them meditation. So let's get right into it and start the interview. Lori, hey, it's so great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks, Morgan. Great to be here. Super. So I think we can just jump right in. And I'd love to start. Can you share a little bit about your own story, how and when you started to practice meditation? And then when did that translate into you teaching meditation to students and teens? The first time I meditated was in Australia in 1986. It was to support my first wife who was dying from a brain tumor. 
we'd read that meditation was a wonderful tool to help disengage from the experience of pain. And at the time, I had no idea what I was doing. I was really confused. Uh, I experimented with her, and, but I had no context for what I was really doing. She did die fairly soon after that, mm. and um, I went to India. I left teaching. I went to India to visit the Osho Rajneesh Pura, uh, ashram in Pune, and I spent hours and hours trying different meditation techniques. I, it took, you know, over four years, I just immersed myself in all sorts of amazing different types of meditations that he'd developed, and I had major insights and breakthroughs about what meditation was and how it would help me deal with thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I went to northern India and I spent time with a man called H.W.L. Punja and his transmission and teachings were really powerful. You know, it was the most powerful thing I'd ever experienced. I came away from spending time with him very disoriented towards the real world. He used a teaching method called Advaita, mm -hmm. which kind of dismisses the outer world as imagined or unreal and that the inner world is the only reality. So I, I struggled with that emotionally and I couldn't really align myself to that. So from there, I ended up meeting a man called Andrew Cohen who started to reconnect or help me find a relationship between these powerful experiences that I'd had. Yeah. And the real world, it, it became much more practical. And I know that's where we met. And I, right. spent, I spent about 13 years studying with him before I left and went back to teaching. Everyone, just so you know, Lori and I were in that spiritual community together for many years. And, and Lori was an older brother and mentor of mine during that time. And so I, in 2006, I started teaching math again in the classroom, and it was a very unusual experience because I felt I had a lot to share with them that wasn't really math, and I wasn't being paid to share what I thought I needed to share with them. Right. But I found the students very fragmented. They were very distracted, and in many ways, they were very unhinged from just having a normal human relationship. And... It dawned on me over time, it took me about three years to get to this point, but it did dawn on me that I really needed to help them with these issues before even learning math. And so I started to introduce meditation into the classroom, as well as a set of guiding classroom principles. And so, Laurie, quick question. So this is a public high school? Yes, it's part of the Massachusetts education system. It's in the, the first school I went to was in the Lenox School District. And then I went into the Pittsfield School District uh, up until 2013. And you were teaching mathematics to 8th graders or ninth graders? 9 through 12. 9 through 12. Okay, got it. Great. You were teaching them and you felt that actually they needed to learn something before math. And, and that was kind of where we left off with the story. Yes, because as, as we're all aware that the learning process is a very delicate process and I'd actually discovered a generation of students who didn't want to learn. They actually just wanted to get an A or a pass. They just wanted to move on. It was like high school was some kind of holding pattern for what they considered real life. And it was a bit hard for me to relate to that 
as a legitimate experience as a teacher. I because I knew as a teacher I had to have relationship with my students. I had to get through to them. We had to respect each other. And and this seemed of no interest to them. Their their real mission was to get their A and move on, whether they learned or not. So I realized I was up against a very illegitimate process that needed, you know, it was a process that's been around for decades. And to really have a wonderful relationship with your students, you need to be authentic. You need to really feel there's a sense of purpose for being together. Mm-hmm. And that really felt to me as the major starting point for my career again as a teacher. Wow. All right. That's very interesting. And so I want us to come back into this and we're going to, we're really going to go into this, the work you did with your students. But before we do, let's just pan back a little bit. Can you tell me personally, before we jump into your work with the students, do you still practice meditation yourself? If you do, what kind of practice and why? Why do you still practice? And what would you say is the greatest benefit you've received from meditation? Well, you like to ask the deep questions. I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm coming on straight down the middle. Yeah, you're good. You're good. You're a great interviewer. Thank you. Thanks. Um, my meditations are pretty infrequent these days. I tend to guide others in the practice. And I've even developed my own CD of guided meditations that I leave with clients and classrooms and teachers. Yeah. I am a life coach as well, so I tend to use guided meditation a lot during my sessions with clients. I do a lot of yoga these days, and I, I bring meditation to the fore in my poses simply to, to, to find that place where I feel on my edge. And yeah. yoga and meditation are so interchangeable in they overlap in so many different ways. And mm-hmm. I love the name of your show, One Mind. And really, I'm constantly contemplating. I guess I'm contemplating a lot about meditation more than meditating itself. Yes. You and I, obviously, we've done a lot of meditating together and even did probably a number of retreats together. And before I even met you, you had done a depth of meditation work. And from all that time meditating, would you say, obviously you're speaking to it now, but could you say in that context, what's one of the greatest gifts or benefits you've received or learned from meditation? Softness. You know, life deals us with many challenges and it's really easy to get hardened or rigid mm-hmm. in our beings as a way to protect ourselves. But meditation to me has been like soaking in a hot bath and it's just cleans me and softens me. I come away refreshed, renewed, and rested. And it's literally this ability of resilience, I guess, to bounce back mm-hmm. after hardship and mm-hmm. set myself. It, it's been an amazing gift. So maybe let's go back and jump back into the classroom here. How exactly did you teach meditation in the classroom? When you started this second renaissance, a renaissance in your teaching work, it sounds like teaching meditation was a real pivot point for you. Mm. Kind of take us in and can you share the experience of how you led students in meditation, how that whole process that you were describing evolved and, mm. and what was the student's response? 
the way I like to lead it, and it took me a couple of years to get this down a bit, was the very first words out of my mouth when I met my students on day one of the new school year would be, how would you like to come in here into my math room every day this year and do nothing? Now you can imagine. That's great. Now you can imagine the responses. This really piqued their interest. They, and look, they broke into grins. They gave me high five. And then I'd say, but I'm going to have to teach you what doing nothing really means. Mm. So they knew there was more to it, but already I'd, I'd sold it. It was like, this is going to be cool. As a teacher or a parent, if you're introducing meditation to children, you really do have to be an authentic salesman. You are selling something that has to mean something to you in a very deep way. And that authenticity is what sells it. it that's what the kids buy into. Right. So if I was just trying to do it as a trick as a that wasn't authentically of my own interest, I think the success rate would be far less than one would hope for. And science and psychology these days have disassembled the mind, they've broken it into the left mind, the right mind, the intuitive, the rational. Consequently, I think there's a lot of, uh, it sets a lot of students up for failure in, in schools because they have these false beliefs about themselves and what they're capable of. And I call these false limits. And math was certainly one of those subjects that lends itself for many kids to have false ideas about what they're capable of in math. They would come in, oh, I hate math. I can't do it. It's a left brain subject and I'm right brain. So mm -hmm. people have this disassociation from what's really going on with a brain. And again, your title of one mind, <laughs> I love it because it really reminds us that the parts of our mind do actually and can work together if there's a way for them to talk together. Yes. And meditation is like a, it's almost like a mediator between the left brain and the right brain. It's a way to bring these two very different experiences together. You know, while mathematics is very heuristic in its format and it has a lot of algorithms. What does heuristic mean? It's like having rules and algorithms that make it work. It's like Pythagoras' theorem. Got it. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. So Got it. So a lot of math teachers teach very much these, this very condensed rule-oriented algorithmic approach, which can dry out the fact that math is brilliantly intuitive and creative, and it's even mystical in its background. So with that dimension missing in math, you can understand why kids just forget it, you know, let me out of here. So meditation was a way of getting under the radar of this um, sense of estrangement from math. It introduced kids to, the, to become comfortable to silence. And to be comfortable with silence in a classroom is really wonderful because it allows what's called wait time. And wait time is one of the, the greatest assets to any teacher if he or she can pull it off. And wait time simply means you wait until a student responds. And the average wait time in classrooms is about one second. It's like a Jeopardy-style situation, mm -hmm. a lot of pressure. And it doesn't really induce deeper or higher-order thinking. It just brings out flip superficial answers 
and becomes a very superficial experience. Yeah. But true wait time, I've waited up to 20 seconds for a student to respond because I know when he had to get an answer, he had to crawl into his toenails to dig it out and bring <laughs> it out. It just took him a long time. And when you've got a classroom of kids who respect that and just can wait without jumping in on him or, or thinking he's dumb or whatever, it's it's really a wonderful atmosphere is created. There's a lot of harmony, a lot of kids feel safe to take academic risks at that point. That's amazing. I mean, that's a very, very inspiring because, of course, we know in periods of silence when we're together, say, in a retreat, Mm. There is when when everyone's focused on silence. Mm. There's a natural environment or field mm. of support. It's a natural shared sense that you are in the same space. You're sharing. You're participating in something together, and mm. you're not competing. But you you have a palpable sense of togetherness. Mm -hmm. I felt that in what you were saying and I had never, of course it makes absolute sense what you're saying but I, I could tell that what you're talking about is really the almost the, the substratum of the yeah. classroom yeah. that's great Morgan and I think that this I, I want to highlight what you've, you've just brought out to your listeners yeah. because there's a kind of paradox here and the paradox is Everybody's withdrawing from others in meditation. You, you're becoming internal. You're looking at your internal experience separate from the outer distractions of the world. Mm -hmm. But the paradox is, and this is what I noticed in the classroom and which really led to me being nominated for the distinctive educator of the Berkshires, was the fact that by doing that, there was a field created. There was a sense of connectedness that, mm. that was created by withdrawing. So ironically, you withdraw from everybody and when you emerge and we come back into talking and doing the lesson, there was a field and it was a field, it was an intelligent field. So it wasn't the smartest kid answering all the questions who was the smartest anymore. He may answer some of the questions, but then the the other kids who don't normally answer would contribute to that answer and enrich that answer. And suddenly you had a collective answer to a question rather than a singular answer from one student. And mm. it was a really different experience for me as a teacher. That's beautiful. And for our listeners, when Laurie and I are using the word field, and I think we more or less defined it, but a simple way of saying that is just a sense of connectivity. Mm. A, a sense of inherent connection that you feel in the atmosphere. Would you, would you say that's accurate, Lori? Absolutely. And it's a very human experience. It's like a mother looking at her baby where there's a sense you're looking at each other's eyes and you're absolutely connected. You're noticing every detail, every movement. It's like this sensitive interrelatedness, this sensitive connection yes. starts to flower in the classroom it may be not quite as dramatic as what i just said between a mother and a child but the degree to which it's different from the way other classes interact was so noticeable that it did draw attention from other teachers and other students 
So the students came in. You gave them this proposition. How would you like to do nothing all year? Then what did that look like? How did you actually start to teach them meditation? Well, I found it important that it had to be the very first thing we did in a class because that's the most chaotic time of class is kids are coming in late. Kids are boisterous. They've just been out in hallways. There's a lot of, and they've just come from another classroom where the chances are at least some of them may have had some stressful or anxious moments. So to me, it was like, okay, let's all drop into something quiet here and just be still. And I would, you know, as they'd come in, at first it, it took a while to quieten down, but over time as kids started to come in, they expect, it's almost like the expectation was so strong to do this that kids came in anticipating this is where we're going to go now. Mm. I don't have to get my books out. I don't have to write notes. I don't have to talk to anyone. I can just be self-aware. That was it. And for the first few months, I guided. I talk a little bit. I pick up on a few. If there's a lot going on in the school, I tend to use that as a reference point for us to let go of, to just be easy, to relax. It's like a pause. We're just having a pause to kind of orient again about everything that's happening within and without and letting it go, letting it be. And did you give the kids in that guidance and in the beginning, did you give them specific instructions while they're sitting there? Or did you just give them suggestions of how to be, or were you really saying like, close your eyes, let go of the day and exactly what happened? Well, it was very specific in the beginning. I would even get down to the point of where they needed to put their feet, like their feet needed to be below their knees so that mm -hmm. they were trying to get the posture because if the posture was – most kids see this as an invitation to sleep. <laughs> right, I'm, right. I'm trying to teach them to find that point of relaxed attentiveness. And, you know, that's one way of approaching meditation, finding this kind of almost – knife edge of where relaxation and attentiveness come together. Mm -hmm. So I would get them to sit with their feet under their knees so that they could understand that the feet and the hands, the endpoints of the body tend to hold a lot of tension. And so they could start to relax their feet. And this would be a, a portal or an invitation to relax the rest of their body. And I would teach them that, look, we need to be relaxed so we can meditate. We're not meditating so we can relax. We need to prepare ourselves and start to relax and slow down so that we can actually appreciate the experience of meditation. Mm. And so I would go, I, yes, I would go through some very specific postures and relax the body and then to tune into the breathing. So I would try to teach them some very basic Vipassana noticing where they would be noticing the four parts of the breath I would remind them that they'd be breathing 17,000 times a day. They'd be doing so, something so critical every five seconds of the day that if they stopped for four minutes, they would die. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to teach them by take, putting their attention on the automatic process of breathing, everything became simple. All the complexity would start to fall away. And in that, the mind and the body could start to deeply relax. Mm. I would do this in all sorts of various approaches depending on what was going on in the classroom, but everything would become a prop 
for meditation right. in that moment. Once the kids started to learn the meditation, you gave us a kind of window earlier into some of that sense of collective response and collectivity and mutual support. In addition to that, what results did you see starting to emerge after you started teaching this? Well, there was personal results as a teacher. <laughs> I would yeah. come home actually feeling relaxed and rejuvenated instead of worn out and burned out. So that oh. was the first thing I started to notice was, yeah. wow, this is having a big effect on me. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And I tell you what, the RAND Corporation did a study on the biggest impact on a student's success, and they came up with the fact that a teacher was the biggest impact on any student's success two to three times greater than anything else. Mm. And so if you as a teacher are coming into the classroom rejuvenated, relaxed, not holding grudges and feeling this is going to, we're going to enjoy ourselves, that attitude completely transmits to the students very quickly and opens up a classroom where we start to listen to each other more deeply. Mm -hmm which is an essential part of what the oral tradition, which is dialogue. The art of dialogue has actually been lost. If you go into most classrooms now, it's, it's a series of monologues. There's this student talking, not listening to the teacher, and this teacher is talking and not listening to the student. So the, the art of dialogue is lost. The way to teach, you need to have this connectedness. So I just started to notice kids would start to take more academic risks because I would be listening deeply to their answers. Mm -hmm. Other kids would start to adjust instead of saying, oh, you're dumb or something, if the answer wasn't the expected answer, there was more space. You might have kids ask another kid, well, what do you mean by that? And so there was just more interconnectedness. And so a real atmosphere for learning was starting to be engendered. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you are fostering real investment in the learning process. Yeah, because I tell you, the greatest joy for a teacher, uh, Morgan, is is when when a kid has an aha experience, or you just feel everybody's just leaning in. It's just I, there's probably no greater joy in the universe, really. Mm. But if it's not like that, there's no greater misery. If, <laughs> If you're in a classroom full of kids who say IDK, which stands for I don't know, as their first response because they don't want to know, then it's, it's like pulling teeth. It's, it's, just, <laughs> it's just not uh, fun. Right. And then I presented a paper on my work to the Oxford Roundtable in 2013 called The Phenomenology of Silence, Reducing mm. Creativity and Learning in the Classroom. Really, what I'm trying to say to you doesn't, get through to people, this might be, you know, a very detailed document that would help them understand more of what I'm trying to say in these few short minutes together. That's great. I can include that in our show notes. So I will be hyperlinking that report oh, or, or, or that paper in the show notes that people can get. And that'll be at aboutmeditation.com forward slash podcast. So it sounds like then you started to see results and you started to get positive feedback from both the kids, from individually and collectively. I noticed on your site, you mentioned that even kids struggling with ADHD 
mm. this this was having benefits. And I wonder if you could both speak to that. And then also I noticed you have a trademarked process for teaching meditation in the classroom called Sync and Think. Mm. So I'd love it if you can tell us more about that after you, you speak to, I'm imagining were some of the challenges that you encountered with teaching to students who may have been less disposed to this. That's a really good point. You know, you're definitely not going to introduce meditation without some resistance. Yeah. Definitely students with ADHD were one of the first to voice their concerns about the process of meditation. Mm -hmm. they, they would almost be terrified at the prospect of that experience. Mm -hmm. And rightly so, because they've been told and reinforced that they can't sit still, that they can't pay attention. So they have very strong belief systems about their what they're capable of and what they're not capable of. And to tell you the truth, Morgan, many of the students are medicated in the classrooms today. Mm. There's a preponderance of medicated students for all sorts of conditions. I was somewhat prepared for this reluctance, and it is very important to create a lot of space for kids to have their concerns and hear them out, etc. This is where you have to walk your talk as a teacher because you have to show them that you're both relaxed in this situation and at the same time you're on your edge, you're, you're attentive. So you almost have to be a walking demonstration of meditation itself in these moments. Mm. That's called non-propositional teaching. You, you're not actually teaching a proposition to a kid to regurgitate and repeat a proposition back to you. But you have to teach in a way that they go, wow, he's not teaching me this by telling me to do that. He's doing it. And, and I want to copy it and see if it works mm -hmm. for myself. Mm -hmm. this, this is a very Socratic approach to teaching. Socrates used to do this with his own students. And so they have to see that you walk, you talk, and they see the benefits of the meditation. Oh, he's, he's not freaking out because I'm resisting. That's interesting. That's a different experience. To tell you the truth, the kids with ADHD, I remember uh, in the end were after about three, four months into the process of the school year, they were the ones who craved it the most. They were the ones who sat stiller than anybody else. They were the ones who really, to me, were exemplary in their sitting because to them it was a new experience. They were discovering, oh, the wonderment of being at ease with themselves. Wow. Was that a surprise for you? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because I, I, when they first voiced their opinions, of course, that was an there, it was in absolute terms. And I thought, okay, well, <laughs> I, guess, I guess some kids just aren't going to get this. I don't know what to do about that. Yeah. I would try and offer them different options so long as they didn't disturb anybody. I might have them, they could just put their head down or they could, they were really agitated. I could just say, look, why don't you just wait outside in the hallway until we're finished and then, you know, you can come in. And so it was just trying to think of sensible options for these kids who were otherwise convinced that they couldn't do it. And another thing, Morgan, I just, I'll, I'll just mention it, is that at the end of the year, I would always assess and get feedback from the students. Mm hmm and some students said, well, meditation never really did anything for me. And so I would always ask these students, well, what was the experience of being in the classroom like? 
And to a student, they would always admit that this classroom was more peaceful, more harmonious, more productive than other classrooms that they were in. Right. So they would notice the outer effect of right. meditation, even if they weren't convinced that the meditation had done anything for them personally. That's fascinating. Yeah. So they were actually tuned in to the benefits, but they weren't the benefits necessarily that they were expecting. They weren't meeting the personal criteria for what they thought meditation should be doing for them. But they'd obviously, if they are responding to that and reflecting that back to you, that automatically implies a certain sensitivity to meditation. Well put. That's great. That's the clearest enunciation of that experience I've heard. That's right. They were convinced in themselves that it had done nothing for them. I could observe differently, of course. Mm-hmm. Objectively, I could see they were different. Yeah. But they could objectively measure the difference in others. And that was, that to me, spoke to the field that we spoke about earlier that there was a field created that went beyond the inner experience. Wow, that's very powerful. All right, can you tell us a little bit about sync and think? Well, really it's the same thing that we're talking about. Sync and think was the trademark name I came up with to describe, because the word meditation is loaded. It's largely been replaced by the word mindfulness, um, Mm -hmm. which is, is now kind of a more accepted word. Meditation tends to engender all sorts of ideas. It's like the word love or God. I I think people just have so many ideas about it. It tends to get either a good rap or a bad rap. Right. So sink and think became my metaphor. You know, you, you come into the room and you sink into yourself and it's going to help the thinking process. You know, so I'm not really encouraging thinking per se in the meditation experience, but it allows the thinking process to emerge because the superficial attention to thought and feeling starts to fall away. Higher order thinking processes, metacognition, emotional intelligence all start to come to the foreground at that point. That's very clear and it makes sense. We've been talking about sink and think for the whole interview. Right. Lori, I'm sure there are some parents in the audience curious about how to teach meditation to their own kids. Just theoretically, how would you guide them? How, how could they do it at home? Do you have any sort of step-by-step approach that you can share or tips? Something simple. I have written a blog on this called The Seven Steps to Introducing Meditation to Children in the Classroom. Any parent wanting to, well, you inspired me, actually, Morgan. Is that the one we published on the blog? Yes. Awesome. And any parent wanting to know or learn more about how to do it could start with that article. We will also link that in the show notes. The fundamental rule in introducing kids to meditate is to learn and practice yourself. It has to be an authentic transmission, and it also needs to be grounded in your actual experience and and not peppered with meaningless phrases like empty your mind as if that is like emptying a glass of water. It, it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. So you want to be connected and grounded to what's going on in your actual experience. 
and to be able to talk in a language that's relatable to the student or the, the child. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that would be my tip. I have a follow-up question. I, I have an example along these lines that I kind of wonder about. So I have a friend whose son is a burgeoning young athlete. I think he's maybe 11 and very competitive. He gets furious when he loses his squash matches and very stressed out. How would you coach a child in that situation? What can his parents do? How do you relate to that in the context of what we're speaking about? It's a question I come up against a lot with parents and groups. In fact, uh, annually I go to Australia and work with cricket players, talented cricket players who are also under a lot of pressure to perform. These, mm-hmm. these players are, are vying to represent the state and the nationals. So they're also experiencing these intense pressures and emotional outbursts and demands for perfection, unrealistic demands that they might be carrying around. Again, the parent, I think, to deal with this really has to give the child a lot of space to, to cathart <laughs> yeah. without making it bad or wrong. And persisting in a gen, and this is going to be a process over time because even at the age of 60 and having all these years of experience, emotional swings can throw you off balance very easily and Mm. they're, they're very intense. You may say or do things that you regret later. I think we have to be realistic that these emotional swings are very powerful forces and you have to introduce people slowly to the process of having a meditative relationship to thoughts and feelings. That's an incremental process. It's what I call the theory of compounding, where you you just do a little bit each day and over time you'll see the effects. You may not see them for the first week or month, but you will see them if you stay with it over time. Mm And it's a very um, important remembrance of being patient with the process and gentle. I love that idea, the theory of compounding, mm-hmm. as it relates to meditation. That's, I tend to think of meditation in those terms too, but I like hearing you say it in those terms. Yes, it was a um, wonderful expression I got from a book I read recently by Jeff Olson called The Slight Edge. It really is a really wonderful book on the... Um, the need to adopt a philosophy of understanding that success comes from doing the right thing over and over and over again and not expecting to see instant results. Mm. I will also include that book in the show notes. Laurie, I think we're getting towards wrapping up here. I just want to close the interview with a, a couple questions slightly on a different tack. So who are your personal heroes? Oh, that's easy. Socrates, Marshall Rosenberg, people with disabilities, and mothers. Nice. All right. What books or movies have inspired you lately? Well, uh, The Slight Edge by Jeff Olson, which I just talked about. There's a wonderful book written in the 50s by John Holt on how children fail. Kerry Patterson's Crucial Conversations. And I've been reading the Bible lately, and I've been founding, finding some surprisingly inspiring work in there. Nice. And Marshall Rosenberg's book, The Surprising Purpose of Anger. Do you have any tips you could share 
for new and aspiring meditators? I do, Morgan. I think it takes commitment and time, only a little bit of time every day to start with. And again, just to come back to the theory of compounding, that this is something that it's like eating well or exercising. In the long term, it's going to give you more results than you ever could have imagined banking and putting into. It's long-term effects are where you're going to notice it. Fantastic. All right, so Laurie, I'd love if you could share with people any projects you're currently working on that you that you want to share, how people can learn more about your work, and, and if people want to work with you directly and, and get in touch with you, how can they do that? Some of the projects I'm currently working on include working with teachers from Connecticut uh, through the Graduate Institute where teachers are studying for their master's program and they've invited me to lead a cohort next year, which is very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you so much. The High Resolves Initiative in Australia have a program in schools called the Global Citizen and Leadership Program, and I'm proposing to create an inner awareness component of that program, which I think is the only thing missing. Otherwise, it's a brilliant program. Mm. And then the Steve Sachs Student Scholarship Program in California. Um, Steve Sachs was an, he used to be a professional baseball player, and now he's working with adolescents and helping them get through college. He's asked me to write a curriculum for his program. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I know. It's, it's wonderful. And in terms of helping people personally, this is one of my greatest joys. People can contact me through my website, Awaken teen leadership.net or email me directly uh they can get the email through the same website great and i will foreground your website that'll be the first link in the show notes so people can learn more about your work and get in touch with you brilliant thank you morgan that would be great well laurie this has been an absolute delight i'm so glad we got the chance to talk and thank you for sharing so deeply about your experience teaching students i think a lot of our audience is going to be inspired by this i know i have some teacher friends listening to this podcast and i think probably some light bulbs are going to be going off and i think probably for some parents too so thank you my absolute pleasure and uh, working with teachers is just a fantastic so thank you, Morgan. Thank you, Laurie. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Laurie Carroll. If you want to learn more about Laurie's work and connect with him, I've included the links to his website, email, and all the books he mentions in the show at the show notes, which you can find at aboutmeditation.com forward slash podcast. Also, can you let me know how I'm doing? Head on over to iTunes and leave me a rating and a review. I read them all, and I love to get your feedback. Also, I want to make a special announcement this week only in the lead-up to the launch of our How to Meditate core training program. We're hosting a free seminar. It's called Meditation for Life, a three-part introduction, and you can sign up for that over at About Meditation. So I like to end each episode with a quote, and today we're going to end with a quote from one of Lori's meditation teachers, Osho. He says, touch 
your inner space, which is nothingness, as silent and empty as the sky. It is your inner sky. Once you settle down in your inner sky, you have come home, and a great maturity arises in your actions, in your behavior. Then whatever you do has grace in it. Then whatever you do is a poetry in itself. You live poetry. Your walking becomes dancing. Your silence becomes music. <laughs>